Would you go ahead and take out your Bibles with me this morning? Open them up to the book of Romans and chapter 8. As we continue looking together at verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one from uh, underneath the seats. and um, That way you can see these things in the Word of God. Uh, you'll find this passage uh, on page 944 uh, in those Bibles. I want to begin reading at the beginning of the paragraph, Romans 8, verse 12, and then we'll read just the first two verses, and our focus will be on verse 13 uh, again. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, this is Almighty God speaking through the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So allow me to begin with this question. What is the great goal that you have for your life? What are you aiming for? When you lie on your deathbed, And look back over the decades of your life, whether it's ten decades, eight decades, six decades, however long you live, what will you, what will allow you to die with satisfaction in your soul and not with grief? What will allow you to die praising God for a life well lived? rather than sorrowing that your life was wasted. What is the great goal that you are aiming for in your remaining years on this earth? Did you know that if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has a great goal for your life? The Holy Spirit has an aim that He is working at inside of you. And when the Bible talks about keeping in step with the Spirit, not resisting the Spirit, the idea is all the same. The idea is that the Spirit's goal for your life and your goal for your life should be one. That you should share the Spirit's goal, the Spirit's aim. And when you share that goal and are working towards that goal with the Spirit, you are keeping in step with the Spirit the spirits and when this is happening there is real joy and real peace in the christian life when this is not happening and you're aiming for one goal over here and the spirit is working in you towards this goal over here there is often trouble in the christian life discipline from your heavenly father comes into your life There is usually frustration, and Christians wonder, I know I have peace with God through Jesus Christ, but where is the sense of peace in my heart? And often it's because God is working for us to go this way while we are working towards a different goal. With all due reverence to the Holy Spirit, I want to use the illustration of two oxen pulling a cart. And one ox is much larger than the other, And that's the Holy Spirit. And you are the smaller of the oxen. 
Now, in the end, the cart is going to go in the direction the larger ox is moving. But if the smaller ox is trying to go in the opposite direction, the work is slowed down. And those riding in the cart will become a bit uncomfortable as the cart will will veer one way and get jerked back the other. The journey will not be smooth and peaceful. The journey will be jarring. But if the smaller ox is going the same way as the larger ox and seeking to keep the pace, well, then things will be much smoother. You see, so often troubles in the Christian life come from our own doing. We reap what we have sown. The Spirit is moving us towards one goal. We're aiming for another, and we can't figure out why we're not as content as we thought we should be. We wonder why we're struggling. There is much blessing when you and the Spirit are working together towards the same goal. The Spirit is stronger than you. And the Spirit in His own time will subdue your heart and accomplish His purpose in you if you are a sheep belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is so pleasant when you and the Spirit are in step together. So what is the Spirit's goal for your life? Well, it's the same as Christ's goal for your life. Christ is the one who sent the Spirit into your heart to do this work. And of course, Christ's goal for your life is the same as His Father's goal for your life. There is a Trinitarian goal for your remaining years on this earth if you're a Christian. What is it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 puts it this way. It's very clear. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Now, is that not clear? Is that not helpful? The Spirit's aim in your life is to make you holy. Uh, The Spirit is a sculptor. He's chipping away at you. He's shaping you. He's forming you until you bear the image of Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal. Holiness is the goal. God is glorifying Himself by creating a people to give to His Son who will bear the same glory of holiness and purity that Christ has. A bride fit for His Son. That is God's goal. A bride fit for His Son. And as a part of that bride, holiness is the Spirit's goal in you. Uh, Look down at Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29. Sometimes we talk about predestination, um, controversial doctrine. But notice in verse 29 what it was that God predestined us for. What is the destiny, right? Predestination. What is the predetermined destiny for those of us who are Christians? Romans 8, verse 29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Dear Christian, is this what you desire? Is this the great aim? 
of your life? Is this the great goal that you have for your remaining years on this earth? Holiness and happiness are connected. You will never be eternally happy until you are totally holy. These things, by God's ordaining, go together. Mount Hermon, there is a reason why God has ordained for this to be a process. God could have made you holy the very moment you first believed. He could have zapped you the moment you were converted and brought you straight to heaven, glorified, perfect body and soul. But instead, God determined for you to live on this earth for some period of time after your conversion, slowly being made holy by the Spirit. He ordained for this to be a process, a slow process, (laughs) sometimes a painful process. Process. Process with ups and a process with downs. Why did God ordain it to be this way? Why has God left you in the world in process rather than making you immediately holy and taking you to heaven? Well, the answer is that it's not all about us as individuals. That even as we are being made holy, God is using us in our pursuit of sanctification as lights in this world. Remember, when Jesus Christ, our head, came to earth, it was said of Him that people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, Matthew 4.16. And then in the very next chapters, Jesus looks at His disciples and He tells them about a city on a hill. He tells them about a lamp on a stand. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Matthew 5, 16. What is the light that is to emanate from God's children on this earth to point people to God? It is the light of holiness. Not perfect holiness. Not complete holiness. But holiness nonetheless. In a world of people, filled with enmity towards God, Christians are to stand out as lovers of God. In a generation that prides itself in self-esteem, Christians are to stand out as Christ-esteemers. In a day when people chase after money and chase after power, Christians are willing to lose all of that for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ in their values, in their attitudes, in their words, in their behavior. God's people are to stand out. And what's the goal of this? Jesus gave us the answer. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is God's desire for His church on earth, that we shine in such a way that the world sees the character and the worth of God, the invisible God in us visible people. That's the goal. Our lives of holiness are intended to draw people's attention to the great God who made them. Now, one might wonder, if that's the goal... Why not go ahead right now and fully sanctify the church on earth? That is, if God's desire for His people is that they shine in this world for His glory, 
Why not make his people perfectly holy the moment they believe and then let them walk around on the earth shining so bright? Wouldn't the best witness of all be a perfect church dwelling in this dark world? Well, I think there's two reasons why God ordained for us to be here in process. First, glorified saints and unbelievers don't mix well. If an unbeliever or any unsanctified sinner were to behold the holiness of God most fully and purely reflected in His people in their glorified states, it would be like coming in contact with the sun. So believers glorified and unbelievers don't mix. But second, God is greatly glorified in the process of sanctification. God is showing to this dark world His goodness and His worth in the midst of our process of being made holy. As unbelievers watch the change, as unbelievers see us grow, as they hear us confess what we were and what we are and what we long to be, and as they see us experiencing a transformation before their eyes that is being wrought by God, He is lifted up in their eyes. As we slowly develop into godly husbands and godly wives, into parents and grandparents who honor the Lord, as we learn to handle money more loosely and generously, as we learn to use our tongues to lift up and not to put down, the world takes notice and they wonder, where is this power coming from? And we boldly proclaim, this is the work of God. Sanctification is not instantaneous. It is a process so that the power of God and the power of His gospel might be put best on display before a watching world. And by the way, it's a process because it's in the process that we're truly taught childlike humility and dependence upon God. Whereas if we were made holy in a moment, people might look at us and say, look at the glory of that person and not look at the glory of the God who is doing this in this person. So church, this is our grand purpose. Whether God gives you one more day or many, many more years, even decades on this earth, here is your purpose. Pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. Now that's what Romans 8.13 is all about. Becoming holy. And we're returning to this verse to think about three crucial words. By the Spirit. We are called to kill sin, to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. This is one essential ingredient of becoming holy. You have to kill sin. And to truly kill it, you must do it by the Spirit. Dear Christian, are you a sin killer? Are you attacking the vices in your life? Are you working hard to have the weeds of sin plucked out of your soul? John Owen, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. 
couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, then, what does it mean to kill sin by the Spirit? And we saw three biblical answers. The first was that to put the deeds of the body to death by the Spirit means that we hold fast to the promises of Christ and that it is in the Spirit's power We kill sin by the Spirit's power, which comes to us as we believe the promises of Christ. In other words, we don't kill sin in our own strength, in our own resolve. I'm going to do better today. I'm going to do it. Today's going to be different than yesterday. No. It is as we dwell in what the Bible says about us. I am a child of God. I am loved. I am on my way to heaven. Christ is with me this very moment. It is as we dwell in the overwhelming glory of the ocean of God's love for us that we kill sin. We trust Jesus. Second, we saw that to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means that we make great use of that gift called prayer. Right? We don't wield the Spirit. Oh no. The Spirit wields us. But if we long for the Spirit to do something particular in us, we can go to the Father in prayer and plead with our Father through Jesus Christ, Oh Father, would you through the Spirit make me more patient? (laughs) Give me more wisdom. I got this conflict. Give me some guidance. We pray. And then... Um, third, and this is where we're picking up, we saw that to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means to make use of the means of grace. You see, the Spirit is the one who is making you holy, who is killing sin in you, who is cultivating faith, hope, love. But the Spirit doesn't do this unilaterally. That is, the Spirit doesn't do this directly without any tools. The Spirit uses tools to make you holy. The Spirit uses means to make you holy. It doesn't have to do it this way, but this is how God has ordained it to be for His glory and our good. And in order that Jesus Christ be glorified, the Spirit always uses those things that declare the glory of Christ to us to make us holy. Now the illustration that I like to use, and I hope some of you will be able to relate to, I've talked about this before, is Super Mario. When I was a boy, had a Nintendo video game system, and one of the classic Nintendo games was Super Mario. And Mario has to survive these many different levels, overcoming many different obstacles to rescue Princess Toadstool from the evil Bowser. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Here's the thing. Mario can be made stronger for the fight. As Mario is moving along, if he happens to come across a mushroom... The mushroom will make him stronger. He, he grows. He becomes larger. And then as he goes and he fights more enemies, sometimes he gets hurt and he, he grows weaker. He gets smaller. But he finds another mushroom. And what happens? He, he grows stronger again. Well, in a very simplified way, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about means of grace. That as we are moving through this life, 
The Spirit uses certain things, our our mushrooms, our means of grace, to make us strong in the faith. And then we go out and we're fighting these battles and the battles begin to hurt us and they sometimes make us despair. They sometimes cause us to grow weak. And so what do we do? We go back to the means of grace and they make us strong again so that we persevere, so that we don't die, so that we don't stop believing, but that our faith is sustained over the long haul of the long race because this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. It just occurred to me when I was a boy living up middle of nowhere, Northampton County, there was always one day of the year when hundreds of riders of bikes would suddenly go through our little community. Um, it was some sort of long, you know, multi-day uh, ride that took them from, from one place in the state. I think it was taking them from the mountains to the coast or something. But they would always go through our, our community. And I remember we always took that day to go set up our table out in the front yard with snacks and water, right? Why? Because when you're riding that far, what happens? You're going to get weak. You're going to start to lose your strength. And we wanted to be there to help them. We say, hey, you know, have this, have this. And they would all stop and talk to us. We'd meet all kinds of people. I loved that day when I was a kid. Looking forward to that day. And we would, we would care for them in that way. Well, that's what I'm talking about. We're on a long race. And we've got to have these means of grace to stay strong, to stay, to stay nourished. And if we don't, our faith will die and we'll prove that we're not truly Christ to begin with. And our faith is counterfeit. Now here's the difference between us and Mario. Even as we go through seasons when we are weak and seasons when we are strong, if we are continually, over time, using the means of grace and the Spirit is working, then we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Our weak moments are not as weak as they used to be. And our strong moments are a little stronger than they used to be. There's a, there's a constant upward trajectory. It's really hard to see because as we're growing, part of that growing means we see more of our sin and how bad it is. Usually people on the outside have to see this in us. We don't see it for ourselves. We feel like we're lower than we've ever been. We say, I feel like I'm struggling more today than I was 10 years ago as a Christian. But other people look at our lives and they say, you know what, that sensitivity to sin, that's an area of growth. That's how you've increased and improved. And so we're slowly getting stronger and stronger as the Spirit uses these these means of grace, these mushrooms, these snacks and bottles of water for the bicycle guys, right? He uses these things to help us grow. So, here's where we're going for the little bit of time left in this sermon and then tonight. And most of it's tonight, so be here tonight. A lot of good stuff to share tonight. Three questions. First, what are the means of grace? That's all we're going to talk about this morning. All right, Mario had his mushrooms. What, what do we have? What does the Spirit use to make us strong? Second, tonight, how does the Spirit use the means of grace? What does the Spirit actually do so that these things give us spiritual strength? And then third and finally, how should you and I make good use of the means of grace? So if we're going to cooperate with the Spirit, if we're going to walk with the Spirit and He's using the means of grace, what do we need to do to make good use of the means of grace? So that's where we're going. We're just going to look at this first question for the rest of the time this morning. Here it is. What are the means of grace? What does the Spirit use as instruments, as tools to make us holy? 
And I want to submit to you something that's a little bit controversial. So test this biblically. It's okay if you disagree with me a little bit on this. I want to submit to you that fundamentally there is only one true means of grace. And that it's the Word of God. That it comes to us in many different forms. But that ultimately it is the Word of God. The truths of God that the Spirit uses to make us holy. Now, this is a friendly debate, okay? Uh, You see what position you hold. There is the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession drawn up by uh, some of the most godly and mature men this world has ever known. Much smarter and wiser than me. In 1646, they put up this Westminster Confession. We call these guys who put it together the Westminster Divines. Most of them were pastors and teachers. They'd given their lives to knowing the Word of God and caring for people's souls. And in their confession, they said there are three means of grace. They said there are three. The three instruments that the Spirit uses to give us faith and to keep us strong are the Word, prayer, and the sacraments, and that's the word they used, was sacraments. Word, prayer, and sacraments. And by sacraments, they meant what we confessed this morning, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, the Westminster Confession was put together in England by men mostly from what we know as the UK. Almost a century before them, there was a group of Christians in Europe on the continent, mostly from Germany, and they approved a catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay? And in that catechism, these very godly men, smarter than me, said there are two means of grace. They said prayer is a wonderful gift from God, but it's not a means of grace. That it's the way you go to God and pray for Him to work in these other things, even through prayer but not as a true means of grace. They said there are only two true means of grace, the Word and what they called the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, then there were the London Baptists, right? Our something of forefathers uh, here at our church, the the London Baptists. And they, they put together their confession in 1689. And though 90% of the London Baptist confession follows the Westminster Confession, they went a little different on this point. They agreed with the continental folks that prayer is essential and a wonderful gift, but not a technical means of grace proper. But they also made another change. They refused to call baptism and the Lord's Supper sacraments. You see, Roman Catholics used that word, and Roman Catholics believed that that when you are baptized and when you take the Lord's Supper, grace actually comes to you through those elements. Literally, grace is infused into your soul as you eat the bread and drink the wine. That there is something metaphysical taking place so that grace, almost as a tangible thing, is infused in you as you experience the water in baptism or the elements in the Lord's Supper. Now, that's not what the Presbyterians meant when they put together the Westminster Confession, but the Baptists wanted to be even clearer. They said, no, let's call, the bapt- let's call baptism and the Lord's Supper, let's call them ordinances, not sacraments. Ordinances, they said, are acts which Jesus specifically ordained for the church to do. 
And Baptists said that it's not actually the water in baptism or the bread or the wine. It's not actually in that that the grace is given. Rather, it is the message that those things symbolize. In other words, baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ways that the Word of God is brought to bear upon our souls in a visible way. It's still the Word that God is using. Folks, what would Lord's Supper and baptism mean if it wasn't supplemented by the teaching we have about them in the Bible? It is what the Bible teaches us about baptism and the Lord's Supper that makes them meaningful, that makes them uh, effectual in growing our faith. And so this is the position that I, I hold, that properly speaking, here is what the Spirit uses to make you holy. God's Word. And it comes to you in many forms. You may be reading your Bible privately. You may be reading it with your family. You may be studying your Bible in a Sunday school class. You may be hearing the Word of God preached and explained and applied to your soul by the pastors of this church. But that's not all. Sometimes the Spirit uses the Word when it's brought to you in the counsel of fellow believers. A brother or sister encourages you or admonishes you with the truths of God's Word and the Spirit uses that Word in your life. Sometimes it's you preaching to yourself. You've hidden God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him and suddenly the Spirit brings to your mind some verse, some truth, some doctrine from the Bible and you apply it to yourself as you preach to yourself and the Spirit uses that to strengthen your faith. Maybe you were on your way to church this morning and you were listening to uh, Mix 101.5 does their Christian music thing in the morning, right on Sunday mornings. Maybe you were listening to that and and a song came on the the radio and, and it was full of scriptural truth and the Spirit was using the Word of God in that song to do something in your soul. Maybe as you watch a baptism or take the Lord's Supper as we did last week, These things brought to your mind what the Word of God tells you about Christ and His sacrifice for you. And the Spirit used that Word brought to mind and to bear through the elements and and was strengthening your faith. The Spirit uses the Word of God. It is our mushroom. It is what we need if we're to grow and to obtain holiness. So here's how I want to close this morning. If the Word of God is the primary, ordinary instrument that the Spirit uses to make you holy. Are you resisting the Spirit? Or are you keeping in step with Him? If you know that the Word of God is His chief tool, are you keeping in step? Or are you resisting? Are you the ox walking with the larger ox? Or are you going the other way? Dear friend, to put it another way, what place does the Word of God have in your life? Because you can't be holy without it. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus is making His bride holy by the washing of the water of the Word. The Word of God is the soap and water of the Christian life that makes you clean. Can you imagine sitting by someone in this room this morning who hasn't used soap in days or weeks or months? I hope that's not true of you right now. You would know it pretty quickly. They'd stink. In the same way, our lives will stink with sin and filth 
when we are not making regular use of the Word of God. I remember hearing John Piper say one time that when he was a very young man, his mother gave him a Bible. And she wrote these words in the front of the Bible. Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. That's the truth. The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. How many times have I heard people in this community tell me things like this? Pastor, I know I ought to be in church on Sunday. I'm coming. I'm going to be there. And on Sunday, they were not there. They had good intentions. I don't believe that when they told me that, they were just lying to my face. I think when they said, I'm going to be there on Sunday, Pastor. I know I've been missing too much. I know I haven't been. I think they genuinely meant it. But friends, there are powers at work in this world that will do everything they can to keep people from the Word. To keep people from that which will change them. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. The place where the Word of God comes in its most powerful and effectual form what's the one place the devil doesn't want people church which is why it's hard to come to church sometimes there's more going on in your life to keep you from church than you know the spirit does great things through the word and your enemy will go to great lengths to keep you from it be bible saturated remember psalm 1 Here's a man like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears his fruit in its season. Whatever he does, he prospers. And that's what we want, right? We want to be fruitful. We want to be people that are growing and making a difference. I want love and peace and patience and gentleness to ooze out of me. Isn't that what you want for you? How does this happen? How do we become truly fruitful people? Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. No, here's his secret. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. Is that you? Is that me? Mount Hermon, let us be a word-saturated people. Let us love the Word of God as it comes to us in its every form. Let it be sweeter than honey to us, better than gold to us. Dear friend, if you are here this morning and you have no desire in your heart for the Word of God, let me call out, let me urge you to call on God to save you. Because here is what marks a newborn baby. It cries for milk. Here's what marks a born-again person saved by the blood of Jesus. He's hungry. She's thirsty for the Word of God. That's not you. Plead with Christ to do a work in your heart. Run to Him for salvation. And then church, let's make much of the Word of God as we strive for holiness in this life. That's the answer to question one. Two more really important ones to deal with tonight. Let's pray.